We're back at full strength. Kenyatta, Mark, and myself are together again for a script-to-screen discussion on the meta topic of movies about movies. We were happy to include Boston Screenwriters Group member and filmmaker Derek Miller in our talk on movies that take us behind the scenes of the filmmaking process, from writing to production to distribution. Enjoy! Welcome screenwriters, aspiring writers, film lovers, and everyone in between to the latest episode of Script the Screen, the Boston Screenwriters Group podcast hosted by myself, Jeffrey Chang-Stewart, Kenyatta Hoskins, and Mark Liddell. And we're including one extra guest today. And we'll be discussing and giving a screenwriter's and film lover's perspective on movies and other various forms of media. Whenever you're giving us a listen, morning, noon, or night, we hope to be a great part of your listening cues. We know the world is, uh, shall we say, a tad off kilter right now, but we hope to be a part of the good stuff in your day with these in-depth discussions on film, TV, streaming, and other things we love. Uh, so I'll start off with the intros. I've been the co-organizer of the Boston Screenwriters Group for over five years, helping out the founder, Deborah Sharif, with the meetups and where we help any level of experienced screenwriter peer review their screenplays with other members. I'm also a local filmmaker on the low, low, low end of budgets, but I'm always up for a challenge and ready to film. With all that settled, I'll pass it off to my co-organizer and friend, Kenyatta. Hey, what's up? This is Kenyatta Hoskins. I am um, been a member of the Boston Screenwriters Group for over five years, been a co-organizer along with Jeff Stewart for two or three years or so, and also a uh, screenwriter, um, an aspiring filmmaker, and um, yeah, so I'm just a joy to be here. Welcome. And I'm Mark Lydell, um, longtime Boston area educator. Um, before that, uh, lived and worked in the Detroit area doing repertory theater and also some film projects for some of my friends. Uh, also, um, screenwriter well before that, kind of dust that hat off for me. But um, really, I love film and I'm, and I'm here to discuss, you know, just that topic, my, my, my love, my passion, uh, movies and movie making. So I'm happy to be here. Derek? And hello, my name is um, Derek Miller, a screenwriter, filmmaker, actor when people need me to act, um, guy that shows up to help out whenever people need me to help out, I hold mics, do lights, um, graph things, whatever you need me, I'm usually there doing that stuff. Right, uh, yeah. Derek, uh, Kenyatta, and I, we've all been uh, on a film, uh, you know, indie film set together uh, working on it. So it's, uh, uh, it's a, a pleasure having him on today uh, to talk about it. Very, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, Derek is also a member of Boston Screenwriters Group. How long have you been a member, Derek? How long have I been a member? That is a good question. Uh... I've honestly lost track of time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, time doesn't mean too much uh, nowadays. It's, uh, it's hard to, yeah, understandable uh, given everything that's going on. But uh, today we're going to be talking about a topic that's uh, near and dear to all our hearts: um, movies about filmmaking or movies about movies. Uh, very self-reflexive sort of uh, topic today. Um, so uh, we didn't really have too many ground rules. Uh, movies uh, could either be about uh, movie making in particular or about um, the joy that comes from movies uh, or even just the, uh, the creative process, whether that be just in the, uh, writing a novel or stage play 
or anything uh, having to do with uh, exercising the creative spirits in uh, any way, shape, or form. And uh, does anyone, how about uh, any volunteers to start off the discussion with a particular movie or a few movies off a list that they came up with? Well, you know, when you guys brought up the topic of films about filmmaking, I was just kind of thinking back to, to, to movies that I've appreciated over the years that fit that category and also some that maybe I haven't appreciated, but there's a constant I think, theme with a lot of the movies I'm thinking about it. And that is, there's a pretty cynical view of, of the film industry. Um, and for example, I'll talk about uh, a film that came out in the, the late eighties, uh, Hollywood Shuffle by Robert Townsend, right? And with that film, he's very, very critical of, you know, how the industry would depict African-Americans um, and the, the limited opportunities um, for African-Americans unless they're gonna play a stereotypical role, right? His, his struggles behind, behind being both an actor and a, a writer director uh, and trying to tap into um, the Hollywood scene. Um, and that, while that kind of set the table for a discussion on, you know, the, um, the limitations of the, the industry and the way they, they depict black people, there's a common thread in, in movies I've been thinking about um, with this, this, this critical uh, nature of, of, of uh, films that are on the meta level thinking about movies themselves. So if it's Hollywood Shuffle, it could also be a film um, like um, Barton Fink, the Coen brothers, um, where you know, again, you've got this industry being painted in a negative light. Um, so I'm not gonna go down my whole list right now, but those two in particular, it's like, okay, we, we don't have much faith in the industry that we're actually working in. So what does that say about us? Yeah, Hollywood Shuffle, man, that's a classic. I, me and my wife, we watched it um, probably a month or two ago. Mm -hmm. And it still, <laughs> it still holds up today, man. I mean, they could even make a sequel if they wanted to. Um, but I think that was a very pivotal film. I, I didn't even think of that film. I was like, when you said that, I was like, hey, right on, right on time, right on target. But um, yeah, because the way he went through kind of like all the stereotypical roles, like he'll do like little clips and stuff like that, um, that the satire, I mean, yeah, man, that's like one of the um, uh, icon films uh, that, that, yeah, thank you for mentioning that, man. That was, that's on time, that's on target. I couldn't leave it out. I mean, that, that for me, <laughs> was one of my first kind of meta pictures into, I, I guess, filmmaking. You know, and being a black person myself, you know, it, just, it just rings true. Just the limitations of, of the industry itself on the image of black people. And the fact that it came on the eighties and it's still valid, like, damn, like almost forty, like 30, 40 years later. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. They say progress is slow, but I mean, <laughs> we should be moving forward. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, uh, a filmmaker we talked about in our very first show uh, also had sort of a, a spiritual successor to uh, the Hollywood Shuffle, uh, Bamboozle, uh, Spike Lee. And uh, our <laughs> recently uh, Criterion, <laughs> to the Criterion Collection, interestingly enough, um, it, it just continually shows, uh, you know, how stereotypes, you know, and uh, caricatures have been really... Uh, uh, have been depicted, especially amongst marginalized uh, groups, uh, and they've just 
continually been uh, uh, placed in the, the Hollywood system, whether that's uh, creative department or the um, the uh, directing and uh, directing and acting. Uh, yeah, but what you were saying about uh, the, the first few movies that you thought of were very cynical about the, the process. I think that actually this goes all the way back to a, a movie we, I, mean, I, I mentioned uh, back in the uh, film noir, uh, Sunset Boulevard, uh, which is uh, very cynical about both fame and uh, the, uh, the movie making process and what it does to someone's uh, ego that it uh, inflates it to just these completely just uh, fantastical levels uh, with the Gloria Swanson character and um, uh, the, the, the cynical screenwriter that just sees through her. Um, it's interesting, <laughs> one of, it, it, it's considered one of the best top uh, movies about Hollywood, but it's it has an extremely uh, cynical edge about the entire, uh, about the entire process and about the entire uh, landscape especially uh, during the, the, the golden era uh, of uh, Hollywood. Yeah, Bamboozle was definitely, uh, I didn't even think of that either, so thank you for bringing that up as well. Uh, <clears throat> I think that came out in the mid-90s, I believe, right? Yeah, and, uh, right, right. What, what year? I think 98, 99. If I, I'm probably wrong. I'm just guessing off the top of my head, honestly. Well, it, was, it was late 90s, yeah. Certainly late 90s. Right, right. And that was a Spike Lee production. He wrote, directed that, starring uh, Damian Wayans. And um, I remember Cisco Ebert, I used to always watch them as critics. And uh, Roger Ebert was kind of was offended. But I, to me, I saw, I saw it as a metaphor. So I, I don't think that. Um, Spike Lee literally meant that you could stick those the black face on television and people wouldn't be offended. You know what I'm saying? I just think it was a satire so I don't think Spike Lee meant it literally. Mm -hmm. But he was just comparing it to uh, other roles kind of like and it fits right in with the discussion with Hollywood Shuffle how um even today, when you have roles today, where you have something kind of like on a level of blackface, like kind of like a modern day minstrel. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think he meant it literally, but even at the time, I'm thinking like we're damn close to that in terms of the minstrel minstrelsy that that's out there. You know, in terms of offerings. And then later on, even to today, or even a decade ago, there's certain characters in entertainment or music or whatever, that certainly fit minstrelsy. I mean, not to necessarily offend anybody, but when I look at someone like um, Little Wayne, I see, I see minstrelsy. I look at other characters um, who are kind of putting on, it seems, airs to be um, famous or to gain success either through uh, film or, or, or comedy or music. A lot of them are putting on these kind of uh, clothes of a uh, minstrel character to accentuate stereotypical aspects uh, that are in people's minds, right? So they're gonna touch upon these types that are in folks' minds and, and, and not even develop their own identity, but just work off these minstrel uh, type characters. So yeah, I see Bamboozled as being uh, relevant, certainly relevant during that time and it still is, as is, you know, Hollywood Shuffle, as you mentioned before, Kenyatta, about how it could still be, you know, um, 
made today or a sequel could be made today. Um, certainly, um, I, I, I'm offended that, that Ebert was offended by that. <laughs> so timely, right? It was perfect. I feel the same way. I was offended that he was offended. <laughs> but um, what was I going to say about... Um... Yeah, it's interesting. It came out, uh, Bamboozled uh, was released in 2000. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, right before the, uh, the uh, era of, uh, of uh, huge online political correctness, you know, if that had been, you know, if that had been released, you know, uh, eight years later with uh, Twitter and uh, uh, Facebook, I'm, I'm sure there would be uh, similar reactions amongst people that uh, didn't understand this. It was satire. It was pointing out uh, that this is not good. This is, uh, uh, these are just promoting awful grotesque caricatures and stereotypes um, of um, of a group of uh, of a group of people that did, don't get that that uh, great representation to begin with. So uh, I don't know. I feel like that also just depends on the audience that is watching. I mean, because I don't, as a young kid, I would watch things that would be offensive to people, or that would be uh, people would be offended by today. It won't think anything of it. But now, every time that I've been looking back with the PC incorrectness that's going on right now. It's like, I guess because this came out back then and people were used to watching it back then. Now today, it's just like, oh, okay. So this is how everyone normally acts. Like this is like, it's just like, we just made these satires just normal for everyone. Yeah, that's, yeah, it seems like, yeah, it's dangerous when you take a stereotype and normalize it. Like, I think that's one of the critiques that Spike Lee had with Tyler Perry, because Tyler Perry, um, <clears throat> kind of reminds me of um, the themes that Spike Lee, you know, tackled and and um, what you call it, uh, Robert Townsend Jr. Excuse me, Robert Townsend tackled and um, Hollywood Shuffle and Spike Lee tackled and Mamboozle. You know, that, you know, every time you turn around, kind of like what Dave Chappelle kind of said it too. It's like every time, you know, a black person, an actor, you know, when they become famous, you got to put them in a dress. But yeah, he kind of refused that. So he kind of smashed that um, the stereotype, just like um, Good Times. Uh, you know, Florida Evans, the, um, I forgot her real name, but the actress who played that character refused to continue um, uh, playing in that, in that role if they didn't put the father in a home. You know, that's, that sort of thing. So representation matters and um, so basically those films were telling was telling the audience how important it is uh to have things represented in a, a certain manner because like you can have different marginalized groups stereotype and um whoever's creating these characters um i, I think whoever whoever's being portrayed they have to be mindful how they're being portrayed because otherwise um, yeah, you can't be stereotyped into infinity until you stand up for yourself and uh, say, hey, I don't want to be stereotyped this way, you know, especially in this negative light. And it's up to the actor to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z. Um, instead, you know, um, let's, let's play roles that's a little bit, you know, that kind of represents my uh, group a little bit better than 
what's been being betrayed, you know, to this point. And, and, and you know, that kind of, that kind of, we could tie that into um, Dolomite is my name. The reason why I bring this up is because, and I do agree with you, Derek, that um, after a while, you know, um, when I was a kid, we used to watch those uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons, Warner Brothers, Porky Pig and Donald Duck and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Flintstones and everything. And when you look at, back at those cartoons from the 60s and when, you know, whenever they came out, 50s, 60s, whatever, man, there was a lot of offensive stuff in there, but you don't notice you're a kid, you're watching it. But when you, you know, when you're a grown person, it's like, wow, you know, when you're, you know, mature and evolved and everything like that. But at the time, everybody was still watching them and didn't really notice. Not just cartoons, but also um, old shows and stuff like that. But um, I'm going to tie this into Dolomite is my name, where you have this guy, he's going outside of Hollywood. I remember I had a friend of mine, um, he, you know, we used to trade movies back and forth. And one of the films he showed me was Dolomite. I'm talking about the real movie. Not just, you know, well, anyways, I never heard of really Rudy Ray Moore or anything like that. So I'm like, he put it in. So I'm watching the film. I'm like, I thought it was a joke. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, this guy, you know, but anyways, um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with Rudy Ray Moore. He was a comedian. I don't know. Everybody see that film? Don't mind his name. I saw it. It's on my list. So yeah. <laughs> oh, it's on your list? Definitely so, on yeah, yeah, I watched Eddie Murphy. Um, yeah, I, was, I mean, I watched that from two, two times in a row, and uh, what um, uh, Wesley Snipes was really great in it, you know. But I guess my point is, is that uh, sometimes, like, if you want to be betrayed, if you want to take that reins on your own, uh, you see what everything he went through to get his movies made. And it's, you know, to a certain niche. And this is why Tyler Perry, even though we could complain that, you know, um, it's all these stereotypical stuff that Tyler Perry does, but there's a niche for it. Kind of like what Derek was saying, how some people, they like that, you know, like you can complain Tiffany Hash plays that stereotypical ghetto, loud, blah, 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 promiscuous female, you know, um, that just goes zero to 60 and stays at 60, you know what I'm saying? Because that's one of the things that Marlon Wayne's complained to her about, because I remember there was an interview where she's like, how come I'm never in the movies with you? Uh, we, we should work together. He was he told her why. He was like in front of everybody. I forgot what show it was. It could have been, um, it could have been um, Ellen's show, but um, it could have been, no, I can't remember. But anyways, he was like, because you have some maturing to do, which is funny coming from Marlon, but um, I kind of got what he was saying. But I guess my point is some people love that stuff. And there's, a, I guess there's a niche for it. But um, I guess my point is if you don't like uh, the way things are being portrayed, if you, whatever your, whatever your narrative is, you can take control of it. And, and, and when you watch Dolores is my name, you can see like, you know, um, the creative process. And it's like, he let nothing stop him. You know what I'm saying? He wanted to make this film, you know? So 
So anybody could go through that. It's like everybody, you know, the first thing they do do is like they go to Hollywood. We people complain about Hollywood, but when they want to make a film, you know, it's one of the things that people say, "Oh, I have to go through Hollywood." And uh, one of these films was like, "No, you don't," you know. So, so this. I mean, I don't want to steer us too far off course or be, or be tangential, but you know what you you bring up something, but it's. Dolomite is my name and the creation of it, the original, of course, Dolomite, or even people who are willing to, um, on some level, inhabit or, or uh, these kind of stereotypical roles, or Tyler Perry who writes a lot of stereotypical stuff. It's like this is their entree into the business itself. But at some point, uh, if they don't break from just simply doing the stereotypical stuff, it ends up being the narrative of a people, right? It ends up being what people think of as that group of people because there aren't really that many you know, examples to kind of counterbalance that, especially for a group of people who haven't had necessarily a connection with life prior to like enslavement in the United States, right? So for, for people who um, are in a group like myself who have been through the, 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 the institution of slavery and lost a lot of contact with what happened before that, and we're all constantly in, a, in a, um, a quest to get some information about life before our enslavement, to see these images repeated, whether it's by Tyler Perry or um, Rudy Ray Moore um, playing this kind of a, a pimpish uh, Dolomite character, uh, you know, it's 50 years ago almost now, um, that does run the risk of having the industry itself be um, not just an arbiter of cool in some cases, but also an arbiter of what um, it is to be a group of people. And that's where we kind of run the risk in terms of, you know, filmmaking just for the sake of getting put on and not recognizing the, what's gonna happen as a result of us kind of putting this on Xerox and repeat these, these, these images, these types. Yeah, and that's what the point I was making in, in terms of like, um, like Dolomite, what he did. Yeah, what he did, you know, he did do the whole pimpish, you know, stereotypical role, but somebody else who will go in a different route, who can change the narrative, they could, um, they're capable of going outside of Hollywood and they, they, they can um, they could kind of take the steps in the direction that uh, Dolom Rudy Ray Moore himself took, but without, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, if he could do it, basically other people could do it if they, um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, you do, you do what you can to get it done. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you saw that. You saw the, uh, the, you know, the difficulties he had, and so. I mean, he could have failed, and he was pretty much successful, man. I mean, he he, he surprised himself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it's like I think films about making films. It's no, no, this is about it's, it's, it's about heart. Because um, when you think about uh, Quentin Tarantino. A lot of people don't like Quentin Tarantino, but a lot of people love him to death. You know, I'm a very big fan of Quentin Tarantino. I only mention him because you could see his love of film. Like, when you watch his movies, you could say, like, damn, this person really loves film. But, you know, I think his films are, you know, top notch, but um, may, not, may not be perfect, but what films are. But uh, other people like Ed Wood, you know, very low budget, uh, crappy effects or whatever. But you, feel, you know, you see the love of 
um, in in there. You get what I'm saying? So, um, and cause it, it was similar to Rudy Ray Moore. What did he do? Because his love for film, he went outside Hollywood. He didn't care about, you know, all he had a passion and he followed that and um, he did whatever he could to get it done. So, so the same way Tyler Perry, you know, could do it and Rudy Ray Moore, other people who won't follow stereotypes could go that same route. Mm. Like they look at Nate Parker with Breath of a Nation. And he has a new film called American Skin. Yeah. You know, um, that you're pretty sure, you know, you even have Spike Lee where she's gotta have it. You know, um, you know, they 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 went outside of Hollywood and um because cause if you go if you go to certain people that um that don't have the same vision that you do, because like if you go to Hollywood, you could go to them with a script and everything and try to say, hey, um, go to them for the money to get it made. They could say to you, okay, I, I want you to put a dress on that person. We we want you to include this and uh, include that, even though it would change the script tremendously. But if you go on your own, you could kind of direct and dictate, you know, your creative process. So maybe Hollywood Shuffle and Bamboozle, you know, in this modern day of film, um, aren't as applicable because now we're talking about how we distribute um, product, right? If they're less mom and pop uh, theaters and it's all chains, then either you have to go the chain way or find a way to go directly to the, the actual consumer uh, via some kind of video on demand, which still has gatekeeping in terms of the platforms of people who run uh, HBO Max or, you know, you, you name it, Amazon Prime Video, Netflix, et cetera. But it's probably not as big a hurdle because they're all kind of clamoring just for content. Um, you won't get the, the big bucks on the end. You don't have to worry, you don't have to worry about you know, finding the theaters to put them in because folks have their own theater at home, basically, and they stream it. But uh, maybe it opens the door for more uh, diverse voices and opinions and ideas um, because the distribution model is different. Yeah, yeah I would think so. Go ahead. go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no go ahead. No, sure. No, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> so we, uh, yeah. No. No. I was just going to mention. Yeah, we were actually just talking about this right before recording about how uh, the business model for movie theater and movie theater or movie distribution is going to be very different than uh, you know, what it was before COVID. And I think that is exactly what Mark was talking about. That it's going to most likely theaters will go more towards showing the big budget um, movies at least uh, in the beginning. Uh, at least to, to get rid of the uh, the slate that was supposed to be on for 2020, but then after that, um, how are they? What, what where are they going to put all their money towards? Uh, are they going to keep on going with trying to stay the course with superhero movies and the big budget action flicks and um, other um, you know other huge production you know 100 million plus productions, or are they going to distribute that evenly across you know more medium budget movies? Uh, more like the model that was going on, you know, all the way up to, uh, all the way up to the superhero craze in the, the mid two thousands to what we have now. And uh, personally, I would like to, to see that uh, more, uh, more resources and more uh, financial um, uh, means given to uh, many more filmmakers and many more productions rather than just huge big tentpole movies uh, getting all the the lion's share of that. 
Yeah, out with this COVID thing until it's over, it makes no sense to make for them to make these tip pole super expensive three hundred million and five hundred million dollar projects. Um, so we probably won't see that for a while. And I do see some um, a lot of series coming to Disney Plus. Like uh, WandaVision, you have uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and, and I think that's kind of cool because it kind of expands the story of these, uh, uh, <clears throat> the whole um, MCU universe, and um, I think they're gonna go that route for a while until you know, like I said, until this whole COVID thing is uh, over because people aren't going to the theaters. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I think it's gonna lend itself like. I think the time is now if you want to um, kind of like the films with with we're talking about. I think it's going to be a lot freer in terms of uh, stuff that wouldn't get greenlit in the past. You know, I think there'll be probably a little bit. I could be wrong about this. They're going to be a lot more liberal, and um, if you're independent, um, I, think, I think the time right now is right. So people don't like the stereotypes and so on and so forth. I mean, pretty much, you know, um, when they, in terms of diversity or what have you, I think the time is right right now. Um, you know, especially you know um, stuff that costs ten million, five million, one million, probably under. Do you have YouTube? I mean, you have like we, you know, we had this discussion before about awkward black girl with um, Issa Rae. Um, it was. It became this phenomenon, and she parlayed that into Insecure, to HBO. Do uh, you have HBO Max? This is man, between Warner Brothers and HBO Max. I mean, they're they're, they're blowing stuff up, man. Um, in terms of, I mean, they really blowing up. Uh, you know, they're gonna have like this exclusive content, and um, you know, they're gonna their HBO Max subscriptions are gonna be through the roof. Uh, people, yeah. Come, yeah, yeah. People are competing against Netflix. People try to uh, compete with Netflix, man. Um, so, so yeah, they're gonna. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a boxing match soon between Netflix and HBO Max and other streams. Uh, which you call it Disney Plus. Yeah, it's gonna be, um, it's gonna be very interesting. But right now is the time for independent filmmakers, low budget filmmakers. Um, and I think stuff like Amazon Prime is ripe for content creators, you know. Um, so the time is ripe right now. So when we talk about films about filmmaking, uh, they had that, you know, if you think about Dolomite is my name, if you think about Hollywood Shuffle, if you think about whatever films you could identify, uh, they, they were doing it during a time when. You know, um, unlike t- like today, you know, um, in terms of the opportunities are here mm-hmm. compared to back then. You talk about independent filmmaking, and also I'm thinking about one of the earliest films of the black exploitation era. And there's a film about that film. I'll go. I'll deal with the more recent incarnation. Uh, the movie Badass, made by um, Mario Van Peebles, about his dad's movie sweet sweet bags badass song uh, truly an independent uh uh film almost guerrilla style filmmaking um 
kick the doors open, kick the doors in um, to, to get his project done. And I'll never forget the first time I saw that. I was um, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, the original movie. Um, I was in college and I was watching an old VHS tape of it. And the first scenes is uh, a preteen kid having intercourse with like a grown, a grown ass woman. I mean, a grown woman, right? I mean, this is an adult. <laughs> And he's like dominant. And it's like that to me, that very first scene, I'm, I'm just bringing this, this kind of a civious um, kind of image up only because that came to typify the movie itself. It's going to break barriers. It's like if that scene could happen in the very first beginning of the movie, anything could happen. It meant you were in for a new experience um, and that he, he didn't have to kind of um, submit to the rules of filmmaking. Um, and that really became one of the original um, Black exploitation films and a person obviously circumvented uh, the Hollywood machine in that regard. And that's again what we're kind of in for is I think what Kenyatta is suggesting this kind of era, era that's ripe with uh, a possibility, pregnant with possibility for independent filmmaking with all these platforms needing content to fill it up. And also just to piggyback off what you said about the that first scene and Sweet Badass Song, I believe the kid that was um, having sexual relations with the grown grown ass woman. I think that was actually um Mario Van Mario Van Peebles. Yeah. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah, yes. when he was a little kid. He used his own son. He pimped his own son. But but you know people question whether that was simulated or if that was real. I mean they sure made it look real. I was like, oh my God, imagine they try to do something like that today. I'm surprised. I, I don't know, man. It's it's out as well. You know that came out in the '70s. I remember, um, I I was like a little kid. You know they used to take me to movies, but I was so young I kind of don't remember all the movies. I just remember like probably scenes. Mm -hmm. That's like one of the scenes I remember. I was probably like I wasn't even seven. I don't think. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the '70s was very daring in terms of um what they did but even though it was right i don't know if it could be as daring as we were in the 60s or 70s like we talked about the italian uh spaghetti westerns and zombie films and horror films grindhouse yeah. films mm -hmm. huh it said grindhouse films yeah. right 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 and they were very daring so even though it was right you know, because of cancel culture, I, you know, um, I don't know if he can, even though it's right, I don't know if he can, you have to be very careful. Like I'm thinking about um, Kevin Hart's last special, people say it wasn't funny. To me, it's something like, even though it was called Zero Fucks, excuse me, um, Zero Fucks Given, I think it was called. And it's sure, for something to be titled as that, he, it was pretty tame. And, and, and people still criticized him <laughs> you know, um, I was like, damn, it's like, as tame as he was, he was still being kind of policed, you know, uh, you know, people, it's a very hypersensitive time. So it's kind of like, it's funny how, even though I say it's right, uh, it's, it's still going to, you know, because the, um, the, the this, this cancel culture, um, that's, that's happening, this atmosphere now you still have to be very, you know, careful. Kind of speaking about movies and cancel culture 
it, it's a nice little segue into one movie I thought about in terms of films on filmmaking, uh, which is Trumbo, uh, <laughs> with uh, Dalton Trumbo being blacklisted, being canceled, if you will, you know, in his day, um, and having this ghostwrite you know, pr projects um, to stay afloat. And this goes to show that, you know, again, even for this person who doesn't fit the demographic of a marginalized individual based upon race or ethnicity, uh, even a white male can be kind of pushed to the margins um, in that situation because they have a viewpoint that is different than what the dominant culture says is okay. So there's always a threat of kind of being pushed to the margins or canceled, even in Trumbo's time. Um, yeah, that, that's a great, I think, film on filmmaking or at least the, the life of a filmmaker, uh, Dalton Trumbo. Yeah, that was on my list as well. Yeah. Um, what else is on my list? Um, Bowfinger. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's not as, you know, uh, serious as uh, some of the films we spoke about. It was mo mostly a goofy film, but um, but we, we, in terms of guerrilla filmmaking, I think it was on point. Love Eddie Murphy in it, um, uh, Steve Martin and all that. So that's that's definitely on my list because I mean, I just think it's hilarious the idea of if you don't have actors, guess what? Um, find somebody and make them act in your film, and they don't even know they're, <laughs> they're acting in your film. <laughs> no, that is guerrilla filmmaker to the to the hundredth power. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and um, even I guess you can even say Barrett in a way too. That kind of reminds me of Barrett. Like you have all you interview all these uh, politicians, and it's like you're confused. It's like, is this is this really? Did they really not not know that this is satire? Or they really thought this guy was serious? You know what I mean? Especially when plays the rapper. I forgot the character's name. Ali G. Yeah. What's the name? Ali G. Ali G. There you go. There you go. And um, yeah, so. Yeah, so so both fingers on my list. I haven't seen it in a while. I got I gotta see that again. I haven't seen it in a while. I think yeah. Well, well just to uh, chime in uh, a little bit, I think uh, a lot of uh, what uh, uh, we've been talking about in terms of independent cinema, there's is uh, real. Uh, there's real uh, love. Of, uh, you know, it's obviously near and dear to uh, all of our hearts uh, here. Uh, in terms of independent filmmaking. And there is an aspect of just being able to put on a show, like, you know, regardless of the limitations or the budgets, uh, you know, they, uh, a group of people come together to, to make something. And I think, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned guerrilla filmmaking. I think one of the first uh, real true, like, uh, auteurs in that department was uh, Ed Wood. And one of my favorite uh, movies about uh, the filmmaking process. It's one of Tim Burton. Uh, I think Tim Burton's best uh, work. And it's obvious that uh, his own uh, his own experiences are also translated uh, to this uh, Ed Wood character, a uh, real person in the 50s, uh, just trying to make it on his own, trying to make his own movies on his own, uh, his own terms. And uh, the pitfalls that come from that, uh, making something uh, out of the studio system uh, back then, uh, you know, and a lot of stuff uh, translates to today in terms of uh, trying to make stuff outside of, uh, of the studio system and making it on your own. But, uh, you know, obviously it's a little bit easier now, but uh, still, uh, 
Ed Wood was one of the first pioneers in that department of just trying to break through uh, with your own uh, sort of stick. Another film, um, I just was making sure the title was right, didn't want to confuse the title, I was looking it up a second ago, but uh, I remember um, both Jack Black and most Death starred in the yeah. film. Rewind. 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 Where they're trying to reshoot all, all the scenes from movies that they had inadvertently erased, right, from a video store. Oh, <laughs> I love that film. I that love that film. That was an awesome movie. I love that film. I can't believe you guys are coming out with some good stuff, man. I forgot all about that movie. I yeah, had that yeah. on my list. <laughs> Did you see that, Jeff? I, no, you I haven't, but I, be, right. Be, be kind, be wine, right. Yeah, I know. I didn't, yeah, I, it's one of those ones I haven't checked out yet. I know I've heard great stuff about it, though. Um, but that wasn't one that, uh, that wasn't one that, that came to my mind. Uh, but uh, in terms of like, uh, you know, sort of, uh, a comedic take on the whole on the, on the whole thing not in a satirical way or you know social satire uh way i would say uh uh well this is sort of it is sort of a satire but uh hail caesar um with, uh, the, another coen brothers uh, barton fink was mentioned uh, i think uh, earlier uh another sort of coen brothers take on early hollywood and um you know, just how the studio system completely, not just uh, controlled what was on the screen, but controlled actors' lives. Like they literally just programmed these people that, to try and suit their uh, needs in terms of uh, press and uh, uh, what, uh, how, these, uh, how these actors comported themselves off screen too, uh, which is a very uh, fascinating uh, look at early Hollywood and just how big you know, and how just intrusive the system really was. And when you get into like um, uh, studio sensibilities at the time, it, it was very conservative, buttoned down. Um, that uh, there weren't a lot of uh, shenanigans allowed, uh, you know, even you know in the, in these actors' own private homes, <laughs> because then that would mean the bad press, and that would be you know back then that meant uh, a bad reflection on the the, the movies or what movies they starred in. Right, that's back in the old. Uh, studio system where they pretty much owned you for a certain number of films. You sign on, you know, to do eight films with you know Warner Brothers or MGM, and you were their property for that time. And you wanted to kind of manufacture or at least you know take care of your public image during that time because if for some reason the public soured on you, their their investment in you you know went sour as well, right? So they would they're just painstakingly you know taking care of the the, the public image of of their their actors because they would. Their, their futures are riding on that. Whereas still today, do that today. Yeah. Well, today it's all, all also today, I think there's, uh, in some cases, negative press can be a positive thing, like scandal for, for certain certain types of scandal, at least, not, not the Kevin Spacey type, but you know, in terms of um, maybe being somebody who kind of gets around in Hollywood as a playboy or something like that could be seen as a positive versus you know, um, it being a negative back in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but today they still hold people to like just not to movie contracts, but just to studio contracts as well. Like Johnny Depp was a major part of um had a major Disney contract until all that stuff came out with um Amber Heard, Amber Heard, Amber Heard. 
and then they finally just let them go. They, I think only a few actors still just get studio contracts versus a movie contract where they decide, okay, you get to be in this movie, this movie, this movie, or you could be in this movie, this movie, or that movie. But I think it's just like a very rare thing. But I could be wrong about that just because I'm not Hollywood. <laughs> In another uh, another movie, sort of uh, not you know, uh, uh, you know uh, Tarantino was mentioned uh, a little bit earlier. Um, what, a movie that about uh, the studio systems, sort of the end of the studio system, the collapse of that. Uh, Once upon a time in Hollywood from last year. I think that's uh, that you know it's uh, Tarantino is most sentimental, uh, obviously because it's about the, the end of the the end of the uh, real huge big picture studio system uh you know from what hail caesar was depicting uh sort of the collapse of that and into more uh indie flair and more uh foreign films getting uh, uh getting distribution getting a uh, wide release and uh you know the the old uh, uh the old guard from uh classic hollywood that was represented by brad pitt and uh, leonardo dicaprio sort of uh being pushed aside in, in terms of this uh the, the new guard being uh, being ushered in and trying to come up with a new audience for for movies. And, uh, yeah, I think it does a remarkable job at showing just uh, the end of what Hail Caesar was depicting uh, in terms of the the studio system being just this domineering uh, presence in uh, Hollywood filmmaking. So one one um, movie that doesn't fit this category, but a segment of it does fit this category, um, is. A film that won an Academy Award that I don't think should have, but that's just a little aside. Um, Crash. Um, there's a segment of that movie featuring the Terrence Howard character and his wife. Um, and that piece, um, he is a, the director of uh, either a TV or a movie uh, on, on the set, and and he feels the pressure from the studio execs to steer his actors in a certain way to behave in a stereotypical way. And it just shows that even this person who's the director of the, the show or the movie or whatever it was, um, lacks a certain amount of control over the, the, the product or the content of the product. And again, back to the whole idea of being cynical about the industry itself, that's kind of included in, 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 in this movie where you know those people who you think uh, have a certain degree of control have less than those who are at the top and they're gonna pull the purse strings. It's kind of like what Tyler Perry was saying. It's like, um... He does, I, I don't know the exact quote verbatim, but uh, <clears throat> to paraphrase that, uh, if you can't get a seat at the table, you have to make your own table. You know what I'm saying? So uh, when you have a director and um, you can't, you have no creative control, you know, you have to go outside of it if you, if you ever want to... Um, you know, to, to, to have these creative decisions and, you know, things that you can't have, you know, so direct, I, I, I can't remember, I, I mean, I saw a crash, but I can't remember uh, the scene you're speaking of, but what, 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 what did he want to do that they wouldn't let him do? Can you remind well, the, me? The, the Terrence Howard character is a director and he's got a black actor in a particular scene and... Uh -huh. Tony Danza is like the exec who's kind of over um, Terrence Howard's shoulder. And he's saying, well, wait a second, you know, this character's not saying it black enough, saying this, these lines uh, in a stereotypical way. And he kind of, you know, um, suggests to Terrence Howard, he should go back and reshoot the particular scene and tell the actor he needs to like, blacken it up basically. 
right? So right. Um, that's what he does because that's you know how he has his seat at the table is because he's able to, you know, listen to the dictates of someone who's uh, like a Tony Danza in that situation, the exec. He's going to follow you know his orders, um, even though it's obvious Terrence Howard's conflicted. Even feels difficult telling the, the actor to behave you know in a more stereotypical way, um, but it just goes to show he's he's not in control like one might think a director is. Certainly in this case, a director of color um, in that context would would or should be. Yeah, and then if they, if they don't follow, if they don't follow through on that, then they could get fired. Right. Yeah, so, so you know, um, Tyler Perry, I mean, he's, um, I, I believe he's a billionaire now, and he used to be homeless, he used to live out of his car, and then he wrote these plays, and he parlayed that into movies, he adapted them to movies and um and eventually that broke off into television shows so um no matter like love love or like his stuff you have to admire the fact that there's nobody you know <laughs> breathing down his neck saying you can't do this you can't do that you know so that's why it's so important to have your own table and um yeah, I mean, if you if you love if you if you have a love for story filmmaking and you have to you have this burning desire to tell a specific story, um, and when you have people that has uh, overriding decision making, you know they could they could they could, excuse my language they could fuck up you know your story by by um, you know just telling you to do certain things so. Yeah, yeah. So like that's that's why I love about uh, Bowfinger and Dolomite is my name and all these other films that we're addressing is because um, the stories is coming. It's like that burning desire. They you know they get to live that out. They get they they they're living um, to to bring that into whether it's videotape or film or whatever. Again, it goes so it goes back to sort of the the Ed Wood uh, sort of style of let's just put on a show, um, let's just try and take what we have. You know, we don't have the backing of anyone, you know, any big names. No studio wants us to do anything, but we're still going to put something out. Damn it, <laughs> we're we're going to try and uh, we're going to try to persevere. And um, uh, another movie in the, in the line of my thinking of uh, movies that depict uh, Hollywood history and uh, you know the studio system, collapse the studio system. Uh, another movie on that line, Boogie Nights, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh. Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, sort of not not debut. I, I always get that wrong. It's not his debut technically. It's his uh, sophomore feature, but uh, he handles it like a pro, like a seasoned uh, professional. Um, it's a huge ensemble cast about the porn industry uh, in the, that cropped up in the 70s, you know, back when you had uh, theaters specifically for porn, uh, you know, because there wasn't an internet or there wasn't, uh, and, um, the magazines weren't quite, uh, quite doing it, but um, it just shows uh, um, there's the, whenever you enter a, uh, the industry, there's always going to be a group of people that, um, that just want to do it for profit. They just want to do it for the money. And then there's going to be the artists, you know, the ones that want to really want to express themselves. And, you know, it was pornographic, but still they wanted to add some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of style to it that was, that made the, put their signature on. 
which is sort of depicted by the um, um, Burt Reynolds uh, character, uh, director and the filmmaker character. You know, he's trying to class up uh, pornography uh, back in the uh, back when it was just uh, getting started in the seventies, but um, at least on the big screen. Um, so yeah, it, I, there's uh, it's it's interesting just how um, some certain filmmakers certain, uh, in, uh, with independent spirits uh, they go into uh, different genres. Yeah, Boogie is also on my list as well, and um, and I mean. I think the overall theme here is that um, we have like Hollywood, if, if you're doing something just for profit, kind of like you might have a, uh, a film that comes out and it is different, like like Nightmare on Elm Street or, so, or something like that. It was really no film like that before. Uh, even uh, Psycho, you know, the slasher film, uh, there really wasn't anything like but then all of a sudden it, it, it becomes successful. Then Hollywood went, oh, okay, let's make sequels. So let's replicate that success. And then you start doing sequels just for sake of sequels, you know, just to make more, you know, for money. You could kind of, I think audiences, if, if you, when, when the movie comes out, you, you feel that this was being made just for the sake of making money, opposed to, you know, it coming from the heart. That's why I mentioned QT. You could, you could feel his love for cinema in the films that he makes and other folks. Just like Dolomite, it may not be in terms of quality-wise, the best quality, but you can kind of tell that he has that love for what he's doing. And that I think that goes a long way, regardless of what budget you have, opposed to... Um, you just make it something. Just for the, you could throw five hundred million dollars or something if you're just doing it because you think you're gonna make two billion dollars. You know, is is um, you could have a film for five million dollars, and if you could feel that love that creator has for what they're doing, um, will probably you know, you probably enjoy that film even more than uh, um, something you just do five. Three hundred five million dollars at, like the disaster artists. Yeah, right. Good pick, good pick. Yeah, yeah. Again, yeah, go just goes along with the same. Uh, let's just put on a show. Uh, you know, uh, let's put on this weird, just completely uh, nonsensical sort of show. But uh, he just found an audience. You know, uh, it's become the called classic movie. Mm. So this is by no means a classic film I'm going to mention, nor is it one that I would necessarily say I like it to happen to catch it on TV at some point on HBO or whatever. Um, but it, it goes in a totally different direction from what we're talking about. We've been talking about guerrilla filmmaking and, and filmmaking that is critical uh, of the industry itself or things of it being cynical. There's a movie that came out featuring um, Tom Hanks portraying Walt Disney, um, saving Mr. Banks. Um, don't remember much from it, but I, I, I know the tone of it though. The tone and the idea of it is not as cynical as what we're talking about. And, and makes me also wonder like if Disney kind of backed it on, on some level. Because, <laughs> the family um, at least, yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, because I don't think of Walt Disney as being a, 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 uh, a nice guy. I mean, from <laughs> what we know, I know about yeah. his past 
terms of being um, anti-Semite and a racist and Song of the South and you know Jim Crow from 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 Dumbo and you, you name all these different um, depictions of, of people of color. Um, not a good guy, but still, nonetheless, this is a movie about uh, Walt Disney and his, his attempt to adapt the, the Mary Poppins books into movies. Um, so just a little change of pace there from the cynical side to something that is, is different. Yeah, saving, yeah, saving Mr. Banks was on my list. I do really like it. Um, but yeah, as you, as you mentioned, it is a very romanticized uh, take on uh, Walt Disney and the studio process uh, in terms of the author of Mary Poppins. Uh, I don't remember, but uh, sorry. I apologize for not knowing the author of the, um, uh, Travers, I believe, but uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, yeah, it's it is a, an interesting look at how uh, you know the divide between creative and the money, uh, and, and the compromises that have to be made there. Uh, you know, they depict it very rosily, uh, very uh, very glamorized, and uh, you know, very uh, uh, not really. Uh, there's no cynical edge towards uh, Walt or uh, uh, or the process. It's much more of how you know. Uh, the creative and the uh, the financial backers are able to come to a compromise in terms of what this movie is going to be and how uh, and uh, what is going to be in it. Uh, yeah, very rosy picture. Uh, uh, you know, I, I still like it uh, because I think you know there, there's there, there's there's room for that. You know, we've been talking a lot, as you also mentioned, we've been talking a lot about the cynicism with uh, the process. But again, I think uh, there are there are several. Uh, movies that uh, that show just the, uh, you know, moving on a little bit uh, to show the sheer just love of cinema from an audience point of view that I think uh, I can mention. Uh, definitely, but the, the all time pick for me in terms of that is Cinema Paradiso, uh, an Italian movie from the late 80s uh, that just shows, uh, you know, how this person's love of cinema, uh, th this director's love of cinema, you know, not in a cynical or not in a, a very, um, there's no other, uh, you know, rough, uh, rough edges to it. It's just a uh, unabashed love for the, the craft and the, the, the effect that the cinema has on uh, an audience and how he has uh, uh, become a filmmaker because of that and how he grew up. Oh, um, uh, the, uh, the, um, his uh, community was able to come together to watch these movies and uh, it, it, and how he's able to replicate that in his own uh, career now. I think it's a very, uh, extremely uh, great, uh, uh, very, um, it's a movie that's near and dear to my heart because uh, it, it, I think it's a very, uh, 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 lovely movie about uh, just, um, how you can take something that's very personal to you and able to impart that on others. I, I think that's a very uh, important uh, thing to remember about uh, about films and any sort of creative medium. I haven't seen, I, I, you, know, you know something, I, I, I could have, I think I saw it back in, it came out in the 80s, right? That 88, I think, yeah, late 80s. Right, I could, I think I saw it, Probably early '90s. I, I'm not sure, but um, it, I definitely would like to check it out. And you know, because you mentioned it before, and um, I'm I'm going to check it out. But um, there's some film, a couple other 
uh, films I would like to just throw out there. And um, the documentary is actually um, Room 237. I, I'm not, not sure if I got the um, the number right, but it's the documentary is like the, the making of uh, The Shining. And also uh, there are other documentaries. I can't remember the documentaries, but George Lucas making Star mm-hmm. Wars. And um, it just, <clears throat> in terms of the creative process, like um, some of the films that we mentioned before, the ideas that, you know, I think it's interesting to see how people come up with ideas for things. And I remember that I posted something on Facebook, how comparing um, Darth Vader, his helmet with the Sphinx, and um, there was a couple other things too. And people say, oh, yes, 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 yeah, you know, you're, you're reaching. I was like, no, I'm not reaching. It was, I got this from a documentary. He actually, you know, uh, uses these different inspirations. That's like um, the stormtroopers and all that. They resemble Nazi Germany. And, you know, he uses all these influences. I just think it's, I thought it was interesting how he came up with ideas of certain things, how he uses history, um, as inspiration for characters and um, ideas for certain things, even story. So, um, so like documentaries on George. I can't remember the exact documentary, but um, and the and the thing was interesting, kind of like the um, the theories they had in room. Is it two thirty seven? Does it has anybody seen that? <laughs> I've seen it, and and thank you for bringing that one up. That that one, if you watch that documentary and then rewatch The Shining, it puts a whole different spin on it. I mean, just like a whole subterranean level that the average moviegoer doesn't catch. There's so much, so much, so many Easter eggs, I guess you'd say, um, in in The Shining you wouldn't pick up if you didn't see that documentary. Thank you for bringing that one up. You're, you're welcome, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love Stanley Kubrick, man. Uh, he's, he's very deep. So if you haven't seen, is it is it two thirty seven right? Room two thirty seven. Two thirty seven, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. If you have, yeah, if you haven't seen it, I definitely say check it out. I check out documentary on George Lucas making a Star Wars. In- We thank you, as always, for giving us a listen. You have reached the end of part one of our discussion. We had much more to say about this meta subject, so stay tuned for the next episode covering more of our favorite movies about movies. Feel free to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. You can support this podcast and the Screenwriters Group with a monthly donation by clicking on the support button anchor.fm. You can find Kenyatta and I hosting the Boston Screenwriters Group on meetup.com. You can join us by RSVPing to a virtual peer-reviewing scripts meetup by using the link in the description. We wish you all the best in your writing and other of life's pursuits. Happy holidays, take care, and stay strong.